again, folks. Welcome to the number one ranked show. I am your host, RJ Young. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Today on the show, we got to talk about the best players to never win the Heisman. And you'll remember, I have thoughts, I have feelings, I have things to say about how the Heisman Trophy picks the best player in the sport each year. I also just threw out here last Friday, well, I guess it was two Fridays ago, who do you think is the best player to never win the Heisman? And because y'all all had things to say, feelings, thoughts, opinions about this question, we're going to do our first segment of We Out You today. But first, we got to talk about why your school is going to pay college athletes to play their sport. Now, this is not immediate, obviously, but it is very much on the table, and there is lots of momentum and lots of history behind this one, and I can't wait to discuss it with you, but I got to set it up for you right quick. This is a nitty beat, okay? This ain't no Laffy Taffy. This ain't no bubble gum, all right? It's labor law that, quite honestly, affects your life, and that's my favorite kind because that makes it a trap beat. You know what I mean? It's the one that ends with pay me. You know what I'm saying? Some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about when I say young jock, but some of y'all already in the know, and I'm going to let y'all go figure it out. Talk amongst yourselves. But the way to get into this, I think, is to take a look at something that just happened in the last couple of weeks. Caleb Williams decided to transfer from the University of Oklahoma to University of Southern California. Okay. You'll note that along with his decision to transfer, being the number one overall transfer recruit in the 2022 cycle, there was lots of conversation about money to be made, to be had, by this dude choosing to go from Norman all the way out to Hollywood. And you know what? My man's is already cashing in, all right? He has signed deals. With Beats by Dre, you know, Dr. Dre, who had the G-Funk Classic at Super Bowl at halftime, where we got a Negro spiritual out there out of Kendrick Lamar, where we got Mary J. Blige dancing to the words like she do, but also, you know, with the happy carol and whatnot. We had Eminem out here absolutely doing something only Eminem, I thought, could get away with out there. We had Snoop Dogg showing up, repping what it felt like, was the one rag that they told me you can't wear at school. We have come a long way. There are those of us that remember Snoop going to court and Snoop getting out of court. If you know what I'm saying, you know what I'm saying. We remember that Dr. Dre wasn't always do that you expected to walk up to a white piano and play during the Super Bowl. We remember that he was once a part of a rap group called N.W.A., Okay, that dude is a megalobillionaire. That dude 100% is looking for guys that represent his brand to sign with him. Caleb Williams apparently falls right into Beast by Dre. He's also been able to license his name, his likeness, his image, and his signature to fanatics. All right, you get what I'm saying here? It's already some money that's being made here. My man ain't played no snaps. Ain't even gone through a practice at SC. Then, 
on top of all of this, our mans ended up on GMA. That is Good Morning America. That is a really popular broadcast network television show that your mama watches. I don't watch it because, you know, I be, I be up 2 a.m. gaming. Like, I'm out here just ready to give the business on this new Destiny drop. You don't want to see me in the PV. Look, when we hit control, when we hit the banner, you don't want none. You don't want to see me. What I'm saying here is if it sounds like the way that Caleb Williams was being traipsed around feels a lot like perhaps the way that Aaron Donald is going to be traipsed around carrying around the Super Bowl trophy, the Lombardi trophy, that's because it is. It feels real professional. And I'm telling you, that's the way that it's going to be if the National College Players Association has anything to say about it. And that's where this gets really interesting. All right, so last Monday, the NCPA filed a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board claiming that college athletes naming USC, UCLA, and Pac-12 Conference were employers that are restricting the rights of their employees, read college athletes, and those employees have rights to compensation. That is financial compensation. That is moolah, okay? Okay? This is the green stuff, not the Bitcoin. Stay woke, fam. The College Basketball Players Association also filed a similar complaint with the NLRB last November, but it gets even deeper than this, okay? I'm trying to get y'all to layers of rap here before rap became commercialized and got onto your radio. You get what I'm saying? I'm trying to get you in here so you understand you can bring this to your peoples. The NCAA is in litigation right now in the third court of appeals, circuit court of appeals, in Johnson v. NCAA. This case has that issue, whether Division I student-athletes can be employees of the colleges and universities they attend for the purposes of the Fair Labor Standards Act solely by the virtue of their participation in interscholastic athletics, okay? The NCAA is trying to fight these things by, among other things, saying there was no expectation that college athletes wanted to be paid, could be paid, so why should we pay them when they didn't expect to be paid, which is a real Real cynical argument, and we're going to get into that a little bit more. But the NCPA contends, as have many, your boy included, college athletes have been mislabeled as student athletes instead of players. I will add here, Nick Saban does not call his football players student athletes. He calls them players, okay? As players, the NCPA argues college athletes have been subjected to, quote, Unlawful prohibitions on protected employee speech, end quote, right? And then we got this money quote from their president. College athletes see the definition of employee under labor law, right? So they are employees under the laws of this United States. They are highly skilled in their sport, paid scholarships and stipends to perform athletic services, and they perform their work under extensive control of their employer, these athletes deserve every right afforded to them under labor laws, just like other hardworking Americans. Now, you might ask, why does it feel like we have all of these suits and complaints at a federal level asking for college athletes to get paid money, moolah, instead of bartering this thing called scholarships? It's all going back to the summer of 2021. 
Austin versus the NCAA, where the Supreme Court let anybody who wanted to know what's really good with a 9-0 unanimous decision in favor of Austin, okay? Now, this is what Brett Kavanaugh had to say about it last summer. NIL is what most contemporary athletes stand to gain the most money from and where most of their focus will be, okay? However, Justice Brett Kavanaugh left open a door for a legal challenge at a later date that will likely overturn the NCAA's rules against schools paying players directly. In the court's 9-0 decision for the players in Austin versus the NCAA, Kavanaugh wrote, quote, to be sure, the NCAA and its member colleges maintain important traditions that have become part of the fabric of America. Game days in Tuscaloosa and South Bend, the packed gyms in stores and Durham, the women's and men's lacrosse championships on Memorial Day weekend, track and field meets in Eugene, the spring softball and baseball World Series in Oklahoma City, and Omaha, the list goes on. But those traditions alone cannot justify the NCAA's decision to build a massive money-raising enterprise on the backs of student athletes who are not fairly compensated. Nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sports should be any different. The NCAA is not above the law, end quote, and nor should it be. If it feels like Brett Kavanaugh is saying what I have been telling you for four friggin' years, it's because he is. I'm going to go ahead and just say that that black man on the screen right there is very attractive, and I want to get like him when I grow up. I also want you to get like Brett Kavanaugh, okay? Like, <sighs> let's go back through this, okay? Because there's some things that I also want to outline here. It's not just that Kavanaugh said they aren't above the law. It's that, well, the majority opinion, the one that actually matters by Justice Gorsuch, says something similar, and we'll get to that. But I thought that it was important to remind you that legal folks looked at this opinion and said, oh, the Supreme Court is saying, hey, if y'all want to challenge the cartel that is the NCAA, we will listen because we have taken a look at this and we're going, hmm, this doesn't seem legal. All right. And this is exactly what the NLRB decided to do. Their general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, actually published a memo September 29th basically saying as much right in it. She notes that Kavanaugh suggested engaging in collective bargaining, but also, quote, that it fully supported the conclusion that certain players at academic institutions are statutory employees who have the right to act collectively to improve their terms and conditions of employment. So following that, we had things like the NCPA go, okay, cool, we're going to file a complaint on this and see if it measures up. Now, importantly, if the NLRB decides that the NCPA has a case here 
and they decide to side with them, you're going to see schools start to pay players because there would be no limit on what you can pay them until such time as we find some sort of like regulation, which is on the table, right? One of the things that Kavanaugh suggested was you could have Congress get involved, you could have collective bargaining, or you could have something else in the middle. But for collective bargaining to go on, you need a union, right? We're going to get to that here in a second. But I'm interested in this idea of antitrust because that is what the NCAA was arguing for, immunity from antitrust laws. And those of y'all that are sports labor historians, amateur as you might be, kind of like me, will remember 1969, Kurt Flood decided to sue Major League Baseball over the reserve clause, okay? Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of history, but you understand where I'm going with this. The reserve clause had been a part of baseball since 1879 when Flood first filed suit in 1969. 1969, Major League Baseball allowed clubs to reserve 40 players, making them unable to sign with other teams for the entirety of their lives. Okay. The reserve clause gave clubs the right to renew a player's contract annually, foregoing any bidding process. Furthermore, under the reserve clause, a club could actually renew a player's contract for the next season without bidding at an 80% of the 100% they were paid last year. So you could get a 20% reduction in pay just because they felt like it, okay? If this sounds a lot like professional indentured servitude, that's because it is. As a matter of fact, Kurt Flood made national news when he equated the reserve clause to slavery, okay? And there's 13th Amendment undertones here, right? Which, among other things, prevents slavery. But also, we have the right to enter into a contract, and we have the right to negotiate with other people for our services. This is what Flood v. Kuhn, Major League Baseball commissioner at the time, Bowie Kuhn, named in the case, was about, okay? So, for 50 years, right? We have been saying, hey, reserve clause bad. But at the time, a lot of people believed that the reserve clause was necessary for Major League Baseball to exist. Let me say this again. Washington Post did a poll, okay, asking Americans, how many of y'all believe that the reserve clause is necessary for us to have organized baseball? 69% of Americans believed indentured servitude was necessary to play professional baseball. When we stupid, we real stupid, okay? Now, we have had 50-plus years of free agency. We've seen Major League Baseball salaries go from annually about $22,000 a year in 1972 to Mike Trout made $37.1 million to hit a baseball and to catch a baseball in 2021, Okay? By 1985, the average salary for a Major League Baseball player had gone from 22000 in 72 to 241 grand. Okay? We had players that were still stupid about it, too. As a matter of fact, during the 1972 strike, the first one by a player's union of any kind at the major sports level, Pete Rose decided he was going to give Buck about the strike last 13 days. Okay? Saying... The strike cost me not only 
200 hits. He had 198, didn't play the full 156 because shortened season, but also said he lost seven grand because he didn't play in those 13 days. Crap. When that man became a free agent, he signed a four-year contract worth $3.75 million after making 107 in 72. And he was like, man, I was stupid then. When he played his last season, player manager, in baseball, he made a million dollars. He had been an ardent supporter of labor versus management ever since. Those of you that believe that college football let alone college sports, will somehow flounder because, my goodness, adults are getting paid their work to play a game are wrong. We have actual training wheels for this. You know what it's called? It's called the Transfer Portal and Caleb Williams. We had a bunch of dudes enter the Transfer Portal. We haven't had a bunch of dudes come out, okay? You want to regulate that? Fine. Also, while you're at it, you want to regulate how much coaches get paid? You can't because it is unlawful. It is illegal. Just like the NCAA claiming that it has immunity from antitrust laws. You know the last major sports association to get immunity for antitrust laws? The friggin' Major League Baseball. That's what. And we all agree, hey, that's bad. Now, the Supreme Court, I believe, is extra sensitive on the NCAA issue not just because of all the reasons I laid out, but because the Supreme Court botched the reserve clause twice, all right? First in 1922, and again in 1953, and again when it came up, 1970, basically relying on precedent, right? This concept called stereodesis, where you just let the precedent stand. You cannot leave in place a bad rule. You can't, right? You have to overturn it. And because the Supreme Court made law, everybody's real skittish about them making law again because that's supposed to be Congress's job. But Congress never actually wanted to do much about baseball, or at least when we had those pieces of legislation that were pushed through, nobody wanted to vote, hey, look, we need to change this up, okay? Everybody wanted to leave baseball alone because they thought they would be the person blamed for making baseball crumble. Just like you have people that are claiming that I, among other folks, would be the reason that college football, in particular, crumbles. Now, I understand there are those of y'all that are like, hey, RJ, what happens to your revenue, non-revenue generating sports? They still play because this is a free market society, or at least it's supposed to be, and capitalism rules. If you want to pay women's basketball players, you will go to women's basketball games, okay? Or... This is the part that I really like. You can build in a surplus of funds to pay them out of an excess where you regulate these salaries. And the reason I'm saying you might regulate these salaries is because if you leave this up to the Supreme Court NCAA, it's going to go bad for you. The way that it went bad for some Major League Baseball owners who decided, doggone it, I didn't, I, I could have had my hands around this. I could have had something like brackets in place. Now I have to actually deal with a union, and good Lord help you, if you have to deal with a union that's got an executive that had as much gumption as Marvin Miller did with the Major League Baseball Players Association. Y'all are dragging y'all's feet on this, member institutions, NCAA, hoping that Congress is going to save you while these cases continue to work their way up to the Supreme Court 
when we're all going to come to the same inevitable conclusion. You're not just going to pay these players because they want to get paid. You're going to pay them because it is right and it will be law. And then you're really going to be up a creek. All right. Now, done with that segment. We got to talk about what I know y'all showed up here to talk about. Okay. It starts with the word high and ends with the word man. Okay. Okay. We got to talk about who are the best players to never win the Heisman Trophy. Okay. All right. I put this out because I was kind of interested in it at the time for reasons that have been scuttled. But I still think that it is an interesting topic. And it gave me a way to get back into We Out You. And I like We Out You. I like hearing what y'all have to say and what y'all think is important. Every once in a while, y'all make a good point. It ain't all the time, but sometimes y'all make a good point. Okay. So, I'm going to give you my top five players who could have won, might have, should have won the Heisman or, you know, at the very least, won it as like a career achievement award. Okay. So, starting number five, going to number one. At number five, I got Vince Young, okay, 2005. You'll note, I included Vince Young on my list of the 10 best college football players of all time from last summer, okay? Might not be the last time that I refer to this, but he's there, man. It's not just that he's the best Longhorn in Texas football history for reasons that you all know, right? He beat perhaps the greatest USC team of my lifetime, in the Rose Bowl, and mostly by his doggone self. He passed for 267 yards and rushed for 200 in a game that Reggie Bush was supposed to dominate. Yeah, I said it. He also became the first player ever to pass for 3,000 yards and rush for 1,000 yards in a season, making history. Okay? That also means, for me, he's a better football player than both Kyler Murray and Earl Campbell. Yeah, I said it, old heads. Fight me. And then, of course, you know, Colt McCoy, I think, is somewhere back to where I don't know, 76 on this list of people that probably should have won the Heisman because I'm not, I'm not into QE wins is not really a win stat if you lost games. You lost the game, don't talk to me. If you're Kyler Murray and you went undefeated through high school, that matters, okay? That matters to me. You never lost. That, that matters. You go 42-1, and one, I need to talk about that one, all right? So that's number five. Also, just Texas hasn't won a national championship since. Hadn't won a national championship 35 years. That counts for something because, frankly, Clemson has doubled up Texas, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Number four on the list, I got Andrew Luck, particularly that 2011 season. Not the 2010 season because that's Cam Newton. Ain't nothing you can do about that, Andrew. I, I'm sorry about you. You know, that's the greatest college football player of all time. But in 2011, that dude was operating on something different, right? Now, this bore out in his NFL career, but it bears saying he called his own plays. As a senior, again, no offense coordinator, him going through a playbook of 250 plays for the entirety of the season. What is most remarkable about that is that his player selection was outstanding. Stanford led the entire FBS in the least amount of negative plays from the offense. He had them in good plays more than other professional offensive coordinators did in 2011. Also added this. Cardinal went 11-1 that year. They were ranked number four going into their BCS championship game. They were That was the uh, second BCS game that they'd played in. 
in two years. He threw 26 of his 37 TDs in the red zone without a single interception. The only quarterback that could say so in 2011. And yeah, passed 3,500 yards, 71% completion percentage, and a near 4-1 to TD to INT ratio. He just happened to come up against RG3 in a year in which RG3 was on another level, right? There's a reason why that dude ended up on the cover NCAA and Andrew Luck did not. Okay. At number three on the list. Remember I said we we're going to mention Clemson? This is the part where we mentioned Clemson. Trevor Lawrence. Okay. The thing about Trevor Lawrence that I always think is most interesting is he's able to do all of this and nobody's ever looking at him. Okay. 66% completion percentage for more than 10,000 yards, 90 touchdowns, 17 picks with a passer efficiency rating of 164.3. Just outstanding in his three years at Clemson, okay? He is the passing efficiency record holder in the ACC, breaking a record that was once held by a Heisman Trophy winner. (laughs) There you go. And for the most part, right, was outstanding as a quarterback. Two losses in his career, right? I mean, dude's playing in national championships. He has the most definitive win against Nick Saban ever, putting up 44 against Alabama in a year where we thought Alabama might stop out Clemson, and Clemson becomes the first team to go 15-0 and in a season, right? It just sucks for him because Baker Mayfield was on one in 2018 and Joe Burrow was on one in 2019, and they just were not going to give Trevor Lawrence the Heisman Trophy in 2017, right? You know, it's just kind of sucks. Or I should say Kyler Murray was on one in 2018. Baker was on one in 2017. I get him confused. You understand? Oklahoma got seven of these, and I just— Sometimes I get confused with how many Heisman trophies my favorite team has. It happens. Okay, number two on this list, Indomitian Sue, right? A defensive player that won AP Player of the Year. I can stop there, right? Because one of the things that college football media hates doing is rewarding defense. Absolutely hates it. But in 2009, they made an egregious mistake voting for the Heisman Trophy winner. Everybody knows it. Mark Ingram. Hand your trophy to Indomitian Sue. All right? Before 09. Okay, let's just take it back to 08. He's playing in the Gator Bowl, 2008. Clemson is in their first year with Dabo Sweeney. Okay? Dabo wants to know why his offensive line cannot block this dude named Sue. An offensive lineman told Dabo Sweeney straight up, Coach, we're not blocking him today. And he's like, what do you mean we're not blocking Renee? I mean, we're, 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 we're not letting him do anything. He's doing whatever he wants because he's that good. And then Dabo watched the 2009 season and said, see, see, this is what we had to deal with. See this? Look, the Huskers have won three Heisman trophies. And I can make a great argument that their best player in the history of one of the greatest programs of all time hasn't won the Heisman, didn't win the Heisman, okay? 19, excuse me, in 2008, he led the team with 76 tackles from defensive tackle. First defensive lineman to do that at Nebraska since 73, okay? But my favorite story is that Ndamukong Sue once picked up a flag for a sack of Nick Florence against Baylor. Like, that's it. Like, Bo Pelini went up to ref, said, what's the flag for? And the ref said, it was a legal tackle, nothing dirty, but he tackled him too hard. <laughs> Get out of here. Of course, 
Then there's the 09 Big 12 Championship, which is one of my favorite Big 12 championships because Indominus Sioux was absolutely dumping Texas on its head. In particular, Colt McCoy, the aforementioned Colt McCoy. 12 tackles to lead the team in that game, four and a half sacks, all against the Texas offensive line that, hey, we're all conference performers. Also, put a nail in the absolute coffin of a Texas team playing for a national championship, really giving us something to go. I was like, man. Ain't no way that Texas should be in this. And they put Texas in that game. And then Colt McGoy got dunked on his head once again. Gary Gilbert got dunked on his head once again. You know, that's them's the breaks, dog. Them's the breaks, Texas. Sometimes you just ain't that good. Other times you run up against this train called Indomitian Sioux and he puts you on your face. It happens. All right. Number one on the list, my man, Jim Brown. You don't mess around with Jim Brown. Like, shout out to Producer Cat who found footage of Jim Brown playing at Syracuse. Like, I've never seen this before, so I was thrilled by this. Right? This is awesome. Because Jim Brown, quite honestly, has an argument to be the best football player ever. Regardless of college football, high school football, professional football. If you're taking it all into account, you're going to have a hard time Getting past Jim Brown. The one thing he doesn't have that should be on his doggone resume is a Heisman Trophy. Okay. This man, 1956, counted for 1,000 yards from scrimmage and averaged better than six yards per clip in an, in an era when nobody threw the football. Okay. The Orangeman, his Orangeman, finished the season 7-1 in the Cotton Bowl. They lost the Cotton Bowl to Texas Christian, but he still won MVP because he was that cold. And he finished fifth in the Heisman voting. 1956 is the year that everybody got to write the Heisman off. Everybody got to say, all the Heisman voters, take a hike. Y'all don't know what y'all talking about. All of y'all are Notre Dame fans. Every last one of you. You know how I know you're all Notre Dame fans? Because Paul Hornig won the, Notre, won the Heisman Trophy that year, and he went to Notre Dame. Okay. I'm saying this to our associate producer, Tyler Wojak, and I'm saying it with my whole chest, okay? The man voters gave the Heisman Trophy to in 1956 through 13 interceptions and three touchdowns. The man the Heisman voters gave the Heisman Trophy to in 1956 was on an Irish football team that finished two and eight. How hasn't anybody done the OJ and broke into his house and taken the Heisman Trophy from him and given it to Jim Brown? That's what I want to know. Why do you let this stand? Look, Paul Hording ended up being great NFL player, right? Make an argument. Pretty doggone good at Notre Dame despite this one year. But... That's Jim Brown's trophy. How does he finish fifth? Behind an offensive lineman from Oklahoma, I might add. Fifth? Get out of here, man. I Look, this is even at a time when the Heisman didn't consider HBCUs. Okay? Integration is 14 years down the road. And Jim Brown showed up to Syracuse without a scholarship. Ended up being that dude. And because he was that dude, Ben Schwalwater went and got Ernie Davis, who ended up winning the Heisman Trophy. But that's also because everybody looked around at Jim Brown 
and said, dog, man, hopefully they don't remember this. Ho- hopefully, hopefully RJ doesn't remember this in 2022. Now nah, I'm never going to forget it. Never going to forget it. And every Notre Dame fan can get it. You can get it with the Bush push. Okay? Okay? You can get it for all the years Brady Quinn was there. You owe so much. You got red in your ledger on this alone, let alone all these national championships y'all claim. I could be here all day dunking on Notre Dame, but, you know, shout out Marks Freeman. We're going to see what it do in, in 2022. You know, we're going we gonna to be there. We gonna. It's a new day. It's a new day in South Bend. Ain't going to have no Paul Hornings up there. I'm going to see to that. I'm going to see to that. Shout out Chris Tyree. All right, now. I want to get to what y'all think. Who do you think should have or is the best player not to win the Heisman Trophy? Okay, so I had my thing to say. Now, want to know what you have to say. And we had a lot of responses to this question. Actually, very excited about it. Who do you think is the best player to never win the Heisman Trophy? Right? So, I asked Producer Cat to pull the best responses that she could find. She found four, and she is joining us now to tell me, who has not seen these replies because I don't read the replies, just what you had to say. So, Producer Cat, what is the first response that you pulled? All right, there were a ton of these, um, but I wanted to, and also Tyler pulled these, um, but I wanted to include some that were ones you picked, but also a lot of ones you didn't pick. So here's the first one. It's from David Isaacson, Vince Young, and it ain't even close. That fourth and five run ended a 34-game win streak by the only team to have two Heisman winners in the same backfield. I like it. I mean, obviously, I put Vince Young on the list, but I also think it's it's important to point out it's not just that he had those uh, guys in the backfield. It's also that you didn't need them because it was Vince Young who absolutely went and won the Rose Bowl for them and the national championship. And it speaks to just how great he is that many of us believe that Reggie Bush is one of the greatest college football players of all time. And we're still looking at Vince Young going, man, I wish they could have won the Heisman Trophy or he could have won the Heisman Trophy that year. So I'm, I'm on board with that. Producer Guy, what else you got? Yeah, this is, this is one that was not included in your list, but I want to create just some discussion okay. with you. So this is from Nathan, and he says, Troy Davis, Iowa State, on an absolutely abysmal team, was the first D1 college rusher to go for 2,000 on the ground twice. Yeah. It's fair, right? It's fair in that it used to be, or I shouldn't say it used to be, every time there's been a 2,000-yard rusher, I know about it. It's really difficult to ignore because it doesn't really happen all that often, so much so that we're talking about Troy Davis in 1996. Six, not ninety-five, ninety-six, rushed for two thousand yards. But it's also, I think he's got, I think he's got an argument because the dude that did win it was Danny Werfel, and I, you know, that Florida team was fine, but I don't remember Danny Werfel being great. I also think that it's an interesting year because Orlando Pace actually finished number four in the Heisman balloting in nineteen ninety-six. For those of y'all that don't know, Orlando Pace is a freaking offensive tackle. Okay, so like. Do you understand how dominant you have to be as an offensive tackle to finish fourth in the Heisman in 1996? It's real <laughs> difficult to do, right? That is I a great point. That Troy Davis, but th- that's, that's a great point. You're that's sorry. like that's <laughs> what I'm. You know, like 
Yeah. You rush for 2,000 yards on a bad football team. Orlando Pace is not just an offensive tackle, but I need to point this out. He's an offensive tackle for a dude that won the Heisman in 95, right? Like, it's... You're supposed to be looking at Eddie George, not Orlando Pace, and yet Orlando Pace is still that dominant. So I'm on board with Troy Davis getting this sort of recognition for that accomplishment, but it also happened to be in a year in which Orlando Pace existed. It's difficult. What do you got, Pete's right, This next one, I hope you were expecting this one. That's all I have okay. to say. It is from our friend Cam Marshall. Manning was clearly the best offensive player, which usually is enough to win the Heisman, but he got beat out the last week. If you weren't expecting this one, I I don't know what you were thinking. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. There's a lot to unpack here, okay, because there's a lot of revisionist history going on with Peyton Manning in general, right? He's got this extremely high approval rating because he's funny on TV. And he won a couple Super Bowls, right? One with Denver Broncos, one with the Indianapolis Colts. But we're talking about college football. We're talking about Tennessee. And we're talking about 1997 in particular. This would also mean that you want to take away Charles Woodson's Heisman. Okay? That's what it sounds like to me. Charles Woodson won the Heisman playing both ways. Okay? It's real difficult to do. Matter of fact, we don't talk about defensive players winning the Heisman Trophy. Because it's doggone near impossible. So he had to be doing something at Michigan to warrant such a thing, you know, like win a national championship. Hey, Peyton. Anyway, other part about this that I thought was most interesting is uh, everybody wants to bring this up without talking about Randy Moss. Because, like, I genuinely believe that the dude that you should be thinking about in 97 is the guy that went to Marshall and not the dude that went to Tennessee or Michigan, okay? So I have had this conversation about Peyton Manning before. And I always go back on this. And Bruce Cat, this is where I want to kind of incorporate you into this. I'm going to give you player A and player B. Okay? 60% passer percentage. Okay? 3,800 yards passing. 36 TDs. 11 picks. That's player A. 60%, 3,800, 36 TDs, 11 picks. Player B, right? 55%, 3,900 yards. 34 TDs. 11 INTs. Can you tell me, between player A and player B, which one is Peyton Manning and which one is Ryan Leaf? Can you, can you read me player B again? I'm sorry. Sure. 55%, 3,900 passing yards, 34 TDs, 11 interceptions. Identical interceptions that cancel each other out. Is player B Manning, player A Ryan Leaf? No. Manning is A. But they're identical, I guess right. is my point here, right? That's, right? that's the whole thing. There's not a whole lot of distance between them. Meanwhile, I'm looking at Randy Moss, who had 96 receptions, 1,800 yards, I think 26 TDs. And then in 2003, Larry Fitzgerald had 92 receptions and like 1,600 yards and like 12 TDs. 22 TDs, not 12. What I'm saying here is, it's difficult for me to give Peyton Manning the Heisman Trophy in 97 and take it away from Charles Woodson without taking into account what Randy Moss did. Now, it is important, your man's point, he lost in the last week. So it to a Tonga Valoa in 2018 when Kyler Murray won it because Kyler Murray decided, you know, he was going to go win that game against Texas and Tua needed Jalen Hurts to come bail him out. It's really difficult for me to give you the best player in the sport if you aren't the dude that won the conference championship. Okay, 
That's, that's Tua and Kyler. It's a similar predicament. And that's what it is with Charles Woodson. He doesn't touch the ball every play. Like, that's the other reason why I think this is skewed. Quarterback touches the ball every single play. Of course Peyton Manning should be good. That's no shade. It's just your quarterback. Now, Peyton Manning in 95, yes, he's going to finish ahead of Danny Warfel. It's just them's the breaks. I would also add in here, how many how many national championships did Peyton Manning don't, win there? Don't start time? with me. Do do not start with me. Can I can I tell you a quick can I tell you a quick story? I, I yes, actually please, do have a story. Please, please, so please. I and, and he is not going to remember the story. I want to make that very clear. But I did briefly work with Charles Woodson. And I remember I was being introduced and they were like, Oh, this is our this is our new production assistant. This is this is Catherine Donnelly. And he was like, Oh, hey, what's up? Like, oh, like, you know, where where'd you go to school? And I was like, um, I went to the University of Tennessee and he was like, Don't even start. <laughs> don't eat like yes! he literally he literally was like, Don't even start. And I was like, I wasn't going to. It was nice to meet you. But he's uh no, he was a good sport. He was a good sport. But uh, but yeah. Uh okay, I have one more for you. Okay. It's from at Kaniac Collector. There was a whole offense invented just for Darren McFadden's talent. Um, no, there wasn't. I mean, yes, there was, but no, there wasn't. All right, let me let me let me unpack this. Okay, so Darren McFadden has a case for not just 2006 but 2007. Okay, he finished number two in both years, first behind Troy Smith, 2006, at Ohio State, and then behind Tim Tebow, the sainted one. In 2007, okay? He rushed for 1,600 and 1,800 yards in those seasons, respectively. Outstanding. Problem with this, though, and the whole there was an offense invented for him, is I went to Booker T. Washington High School in Tulsa. Do you know who else went to Booker T. Washington High School in Tulsa? And who I played scout team linebacker against at Booker T. Washington High School in Tulsa, who was also just a year ahead of me at Booker T. Washington High School in Tulsa, who ran me over when I met him in the hole with his whole foot in my chest, and then, insult injury, helped me back up by lifting me up with his bare hand, his one bare hand, and pat me on the backside going, good job, filling. Felix Jones, who rushed for 1,100 yards in that 07 season that everybody loves so much, and rushed for 1,100 yards in that 06 season where people wanted to act like that man did not exist. You had two tailbacks back there that were outstanding, okay? Nobody could really tell you one was better than the other. One just got more carries than the other. Also, take a look at what happened in the NFL, okay? I'm, if it sounds like I got some hometown bias, that's because I do. I'm from Tulsa. Felix Jones, one of the greatest athletes I ever got the privilege of getting my butt kicked by, Okay? I'm not going to let you act like he wasn't in that backfield. Talking about, oh, he had a whole offensive edit for him. So? You know who else had one? Darren Sproles. You know? Like, I keep going here. Like, it ain't like Steve Slayton ain't got no arguments here. You know, and all anybody wants to talk about is Pat White. No shade to Pat White, but you understand what I'm saying. I'm just not going to let you talk noise about Felix Jones in that way. I will say, them's the breaks that you, <laughs> you're coming out in 07 when Tim Tebow is... Not just on a great Florida team, but can do no wrong. Like, y'all, it ain't no secret, right? I'm not no Tim Tebow fan. I just can't ignore y'all. 
And I can't ignore what he did in 07. Just sucks for Darren McFadden. And there's a couple of other folks that get into this, right? Because I also wanted to touch on a couple of things, and I'm, and I'm glad that Producer Cat pulled these men out because, frankly, the whole point of this discussion is to talk about college football players and not just the dudes that win the Heisman Trophy. But 2014, we got Melvin Gordon, who rushed for 2,587 yards. Let me say that again. 2,587 yards. Okay? He ranks number two all-time in yards from scrimmage in a season with 2,740. 2014. Them's just the breaks. Okay? Another dude that people really love that people want to bring up from now time to time is Christian McCaffrey. Okay? 2,000 yards rushing and 645 yards receiving. 2,664 yards from scrimmage. Number five all-time in yards from scrimmage in a single season, okay? You know who won it that year? Dude by the name of Derrick Henry. It's just stems to breaks, right? You had your magic season when somebody else had their magic season on a national championship caliber team. And then I also need to add this in here. Whenever I give this as a trivia question, I'm always shocked that people just more people don't get it right. Who is the all-time record leader from yards from scrimmage in a season? A lot of people might say Christian McCaffrey. Some people from Wisconsin in particular might say Melvin Gordon. Other people would pick what I would have thought before I go into look this up years ago and say Barry Sanders, right? The, que- the que- answer to the question is Kevin Smith at the University of Central Florida. What I'm saying here is just because you have a magic season doesn't mean that the 900 folks that vote for this trophy think anything about you usually goes to the best player on the best team and usually best player in college football does not play on the best team and if he does usually it's an Indomitian Sioux situation where he plays defense shout out Chase Young all right that was fun I'm glad that we got to do our first segment of 2022 that is we out here we're going to do more of this I also enjoy seeing Douche Cat in the chair and I love the banter like it's fun I'm glad she shared that story about Charles Woodson, I'm sure that Matt Leinart gets the same sort of shade because Adrian Peterson rushed for 1,925 yards and they just didn't want to give it to a freshman running back at the time. I'm sure Matt Leinart hears that all the time, but Matt's my boy, like, to the heart with that, right? So I'm not just going to give him that shade. I will say there are those of y'all that are going to shout Adrian Peterson at me and I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. All right, that is going to do it for this episode of the number one ranked show. Our lead producer is Catherine Donnelly. Our director is John Marcus. Our associate producer is Tyler Wojak. Javion Duncan handles all of our social media. Rachel Cohn is our lead of screening. And I'm the host. I will see you next week. Deuces.